where did Western civilization go wrong? Like if there was a garden someplace and everything felt good, true, and beautiful back then, what the fuck have we done since? And where was the fork in the road, right? Where was that fork? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is the author of the global bestseller and Pulitzer Prize-nominated Stealing Fire, How Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists Are Revolutionizing the Way We Live and Work, and more recently, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. His name is Jamie Wheel. In the few conversations I've had with Jamie over the years, I expect this to be the intellectual equivalent of the rumble in the jungle. So Jamie, thank you for joining us today. Are you ready to go field tripping? For sure, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. First question. I don't know you very well, but I suspect I know you well enough to think that there's at least one grand societal problem or issue that's occupying your brain today. Just curious. Hmm. What what is that one thing that's running through your head today uh in in all the news and subject matter that's going on? Well, I mean, <laughs> the one I did this is not rehearsed and probably not politic, but but the one that just did catch my eye this morning in the news was the uh runoffs of the Georgia election. And the fact that it was plus or minus two percentage points with an a rolling dumpster fire of a conservative candidate who couldn't have been more antithetical to the very constituents that somehow then bizarrely still voted for the fellow led me to say to my wife, Julie, I was like, sweet Jesus, if this is the kind of jump ball that we're experiencing in, in conventional politics, how on earth are we ever going to get on the same page about the complex, multivariable existential challenges of the next 50 years? So it was just sort of that throwing up my hands at the both the sort of the idiocracy and sort of so simultaneously the dumbing down plus the factionalism and the tribalism that we're experiencing and just that sort of sense of if we don't come to our senses lickety split, we kind of deserve everything that's coming. It's a very interesting subject. And actually this morning I was I was listening to the podcast The Gray Area with Sean uh, Illing. I don't know if you happen to know that one or not. And I couldn't tell you the name of the, his guest, but they were talking about the state of media in the world and how the advent of the internet led to the destruction of local media, local newspapers, and the shift um, of the major media outlets, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, into being hyper-focused on politics because all the specialized subject matter, tech, science, all that kind of stuff went into specific blogs or specific websites that focus on these matters. So politics, specifically federal politics, became the top subject du jour. And, and they describe it as being like sports talk radio, like hyper nerdy, hyper in-depth details about politics that really don't affect people's lives day to day, but become so tribalized as, as you kind of described. But the most interesting thing that came out of the conversation was that I guess there was recently a Gallup poll that was completed where 85% of respondents said the world is essentially going to shit. But in the same survey, they said that things in their local communities are actually pretty good. Yeah, And it yeah, shows yeah. the real distinction that when we think about it on a macro basis, where we get caught up in all the BS around federal politics, we lose our minds and become very defensive and, and politicized. When we go local, it's not so bad. And it's easy to get caught up in all the noise up here. But day to day, maybe maybe we can take a breath. I think if we don't stop to take a breath, 
gauge what's going on, that's just going to make the, the problems worse. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's funny. It's a topic that just came up today for me. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of coming into this backwards. Normally, this is kind of the end of a, of a much more uh, kind of complicated argument to get here. But I think that the, the dynamic that you're pointing out, that it's harder to be douchey to your neighbors than it is to randos on Twitter, <laughs> you know, is a legit insight about human nature. And when we, you know, because look, particularly in the psychedelic renaissance, you know, in that extended community, right? There, there is a sort of always implicit, sometimes explicit hope and assumption that the ex consciousness expansion that has often been, you know, correlated with psychedelic experience is going to expand our consciousness to the place of some global humanist perspective. And every, you know, you, you can't swing a dead cat with somebody not quoting Einstein's, you can't solve a problem at the level it was created, right? And, and off we go, high, higher and wider. And my sort of sense is that it's sort of as an historian, as a student of culture over time is, hey guys, I think we had that, we had a 75 year run at that, you know, from 1945 on, on and we had the new age, the human potential movement, the new age movement, the personal growth movement, the countercultural revolution, we had all the things. And we've indulged in all the workshops. We've done Landmark and Tony Robbins, and we, we did it all. And we still are kind of shitty people. So the odds of us actually expanding at the last minute to global centric conscious, consciousness to save the day, I think is increasingly a pipe dream. And that actually what we really need to do now is closer to kind of self-arresting on a big mountain, you know, with your ice axe, where you're like, but as you start sliding backwards, which you could make a case we're starting to slide backwards. Right, dig that ice axe in, and and what do we dig it into? Well, we dig it into tribalism. If we can't make it to globalism, right? How do we have to self-arrest into tribalism? And we know that you know fundamentally, ethnic or racial tribalism does all the sad and destructive and often violent things that that does. We know that you know you know creed or beliefs. Are even bloodier. They mobilize, you know, tens of thousands to millions of people against each other instead of just 150 against 150 of their neighbors. So the question is: is what are some potentially healthy forms of tribalism? And I think it's basically, you know, bioregional. You know, this is the watershed. This is where this food grows. <laughs> this is where our life orients and operates, and it's local and it's neighborly. And that gets through the MSNBC, Fox News screaming matches. That gets through the sense of you've got the wrong bumper sticker on your, you know, Dodge Ram pickup or your Toyota Prius, you know. And it's much more like, hey, is the neighborhood on fire? Great, we're going to have a bucket brigade. And I don't, you know, and I care about you as my neighbor. We are rallying together to protect our homes. And then, like, let's vote on a bond issue for our school. We care about our kids having good education, right? I mean, yes, we can get wildly out of whack with the current culture wars around reading, reading lists and libraries and all that. But, like, can we just commit to say we want the best for our kids? Can we commit to say we want the best for our watersheds and air and soil? I mean, that should, those things shouldn't be political. Can we commit to being resilient against natural disasters or other things? And you just sort of feel like, the active, resilient community isn't scalable, right? It's the opposite of everything that Silicon Valley's been trumpeting for the last couple of decades. It's it's slow. It's painstaking. It's 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 rubbing elbows and digging ditches and breaking bread, you know. And it's and it's doing the sort of you know human 1.0 stuff, not the human 3.0 stuff.
Totally in alignment. I actually, as you were speaking, it took me back to a moment when I was in, um, I think my second or third year of law school and I was having a debate with a girl I was dating at the time. Uh, and I was always generally pro-liberalization of trade, you know, opening up the economy, all this kind of stuff, because rising tide in theory should lift all boats and productivity and all that kind of stuff will eventually elevate. And, and there are some arguments in favor of that. And, and this girl's counterpoint was, do you care if your own bill is $10 cheaper because there's inherent competition? Or do you care if your neighbor has a job with a living wage at a local phone company? And even if you have to pay a little bit more for your phone, at least you have the satisfaction knowing that your neighbor has a job that pays him enough to live. And it was the first time I stopped. I'm like, yeah, actually, that is a very different framing of the equation that I hadn't really been presented with up to that point because it all it was still you know coming out of Bill Clinton, George Bush era kind of conversation where just liberalization, globalization, and Naomi Klein was out with no logo and all that kind of stuff. But it was it's a really interesting point, and it's the point you're coming back to. And 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 just a secondary um, thought is. Just uh, as a quick shout out to our previous guest on the podcast, David Sachs, uh, who wrote A Revenge of Analog and more recently The Future is Analog, gave a very searing example of the pandemic has shown us what this digital utopian future that everybody has been trending towards for the longest time looks like. And it sucked, right? Like being isolated in your home, doing everything in your computer, not having the 3D interpersonal real life interaction sucks. And, and so it does, again, point back to why are we doing all of this? What is this digital race to the future if it's not serving what we actually want? And if what we want is just clean air, clean water, and food to eat, then let's take a deep breath and hard, hard reevaluation uh, of all the things that we seem to be working on. I don't know if you have, if you have any thoughts on that, but there are just a couple of thoughts that, that came up as, as you said that. Yeah, I just wrote a recent essay actually um, mulling exactly this because our experience in a little mountain town in Colorado is case in point and have found no surprise that doing things locally is slower, less convenient, more expensive because basically all your local community are middlemen, right? To what we're accustomed to being these hyper-efficient global supply chains. We're, we're accustomed to one-click shipping that's free because I already got snooked into my Prime membership and I don't even think about it anymore. And it's on my doorstep in the morning. You go, you have to wait in line at a local post office and pay 40 bucks to mail cookies or socks that aren't even worth 40 bucks. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I want to see the manager, you know, or... You're like this is this is how much the 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 bond the reclaimed bond would cost at this little rinky dink local railroad stop. Like, let me Google lumber liquidators and let me see if I can get a pallet of that from Denver or you know someplace else. Right? You realize, oh, we have been conditioned in that last thirty years. That's what you were describing as that kind of Bill Clinton, Bush, NAFTA, post NAFTA, like major neoliberal globalization push. We've been conditioned as incredibly inflexible, deconditioned consumer zoo animals, right? And we've been fractured from all of our communities. And so you get a bunch of nice kind of conchy culture folks being like, I'm calling in community or what's next is we're all going to live in community. And you're like, are you sure? Because I don't think you know the first thing about living in community and what it actually entails. And then also why everybody, when they had, as soon as they had the chance in the early 20th century, all the way through post-World War II, 
chose the fucking suburbs, right? People wanted proximity to urban density, to culture, to high wage jobs, all those kind of things. But they really, people liked to be able to bugger off and not have their neighbors gossiping and not being stuck in tenements and not being up in each other's business all the time. So I think we're in a fascinating stage where, you know, what's old is new again. And people are sort of looking to reclaim and recapture stuff. But I mean, if you want to live in community, it's almost, you know, community capitalism as free market socialism. To your point about the phone guy, like you choose to actually forego the efficiencies of Amazon to give your dollars to the local hardware, you know, store so they can stay in business. You know, you choose, right? You, you choose to work with a local builder versus getting some super, the, the Tesla of, you know, smart homes, you know, built in a factory in California and shipped on a trailer and dropped on a crane. You choose to involve and engage the local stakeholders and it's slower and it costs more, you know, and it's probably not as whiz bang shiny as that slick website, you know, from the coasts. So it, yeah. it is a, it, it's a fascinating moment we're in as to how we choose, you know, because I mean, again, the conservatives are quite often about community self-reliance, like cut social security, cut social safety nets, cut the quote unquote welfare state, boost community or church-based civic aid, boost all these, you know, people actually looking after who lives near them. And the trick with that is that if we've become accustomed to statism, Right then, we've atrophied all the muscles of care and concern for our for our local world. We just see ourselves as atomized individuals, you know. So you take away that stuff, and then it's not like suddenly civic duty and community, you know, social capital just emerges out of nowhere. So we have to be really aware of how we're shifting our support structures for how we do this human thing. We can't simply just cut off one because it feels bloated and inefficient and then magically assume that we still remember how to do local and then let alone traditional community, let alone progressive community. Yeah, 100%. And and it brings me back to a, a point about psychedelics, actually, which is, as you know, I have more questions about it that we'll get to later. But as part of the documentary uh, that you were part of, thank you. Um, one of the experiences I had was that the power of psychedelics isn't so much expanding your consciousness into an evolved state, but when you're in a psychedelic experience and your ego drops and you share that experience with people, the bond and the community that forms is so deep and the connections made so meaningful that actually maybe the power of psychedelics is not in consciousness expansion, but ego dissolution in a group setting whereby people can connect again and start to build that skill set that atrophied and state well the welfare state environment um that's certainly been my experience and the more people i talk to about it the more even though all of us are sort of well-to-do urban or suburban individuals who hate the idea of doing psychedelics in group every time you've done psychedelics in a group setting come away being like that is way more powerful than sitting with a therapist and doing it by myself. Well, for sure. I mean, and 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 I feel like it might have even been Robin Cahart Harris, somebody recently uh, in that field, or or Matt Johnson recently just published. In fact, I think it was Robin because he, he it was about sort of communitas, right? It was about the group or collective experience, and you know, surprise, surprise, with the exception of sort of shamanic initiatory vision quest, and even then, not always, people weren't. In isolation, these were always community affairs, 
And so the ability, and this goes to Robin Dunbar's work right at Oxford. Um, on he's the one who's famous for the 150 Dunbar number, you know, sort of group coherence thing. But he also did studies with the San Bushman and the Kalahari, and found that their tendency to have to use their ecstatic technology, which was a trance dance, so drumming, rhythm, fire, endless, endless dancing, so sort of physical stress, stressors and strain, the sonic driving of the polyrhythms and the beats, to put the group into a trance state. They did that more often, not less often, the harder their lives were. So basically, the, the saltier folks were getting with each other, the more often they used trance dance to kind of flush the system. Right. So right. It's, it's almost sort of like a sort of groove and reconciliation committee. Like we are at each other's throats. There's all kinds of petty politics and drama. You know, there's probably fisticuffs ready to break out if they haven't already. And we sweat our prose and we do it together. And then by the end, there's just less shit to talk about. And I think so for sort of accretive micro PTSD, meaning just the, 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 the slings and arrows of the day-to-day, -day, the stones in our shoes, right? The, the, the grit and the pearl, that kind of stuff. That kind of, you know, what sociologists like Max Baber and others would have called collective effervescence, right? Really dropping in together into a shared coherent state is a profound part of our sort of social immune systems. How do we meet and then metabolize the frictions and tensions of the day-to-day? Then, you know, separately, there's also the kind of the macro PTSD, and those are perhaps more delicate, right? Like if, if, if someone's just slept with your spouse and you want to murder them, you might just not be able to work that shit out with a good dance party, right? <laughs> if, if there's been violence, if there's been fraud, like the heavier stuff would need mediation, would need elders, would need different social technology. But for the general general, I think a tremendous amount can be just you know, included under the umbrella of sort of work it out, right? Like work out your problems, work out your answers, work out your, work out your questions, work out your solutions, work out your body, work out your mind, like work it out. And music and dance are obviously some of the most powerful, most ubiquitous and, and oldest psycho technologies uh, to, to get that done. Totally. And, and we're going to get into that more in a little bit, but uh, I'm going to take a left turn on, on this conversation, which I have loved so far, but you are the founder of the Flow Genome Project, project and you have two, what I would call very important books published, Dealing Fire, Fire and Recapture the Rapture. But I don't really know much about how you got to this point. How does Jamie Wheel start out and end up starting the Flow Genome Project and, and writing these two books as well? What was your path to get there? You can go back as far as you want. Born the son of a of a military test pilot, right? So like that that started one thing. But he was also kind of a polymath. So it would be everything from Shakespeare and Caesar quotes and the Sunday Telegraph crossword puzzle, you know, and and BBC word game like My Word, which was this famous you know radio program back in the day that that there's some NPR knockoffs of. Um, and he was also a banjo player, a classical guitarist, and a ragtime piano player, and also raced. Jaguars raced for Jaguar in South Africa when he was young, and also built motorcycles from junkyards. So, like, very interesting guy. Um, and so that was our original life, and straddling Africa, England to the U.S. So never of one place properly anywhere, really. So I'd say that was the substrate. And then college into grad school was just really interested in history and anthropology. Just how did what are we doing? 
you know, what is this whole monkeys with clothes game? Probably because I hadn't ever been of a specific culture. I was always kind of on the outside looking in, like, what are the strange customs of these of these hominids? You know, like that was my just lived experience. So then I formalized that with my academic study. And, you know, particularly in my younger, more idealistic age, there was a little bit of that kind of, you know, Ishmael sense of like, where did where did Western civilization go wrong? Like if there was a garden someplace, you know, and, and everything felt good, true, and beautiful back then, what the fuck have we done since? And where was the fork in the road, right? Where was that fork? Was it 10,000 years ago with agriculture? Was it, you know, was it the industrial revolution? Was it capitalism? Who knows? Where was it? And as a result, I was particularly interested in non-Western cultures. So in grad school, I studied with Vine Deloria Jr., who was a Yale-trained lawyer, but a Lakota elder, and one of the preeminent uh, First Nations thinkers, scholars, and leaders of the 20th century. And um, that was, I was just hell-bent on doing my dissertation and, and going into a career in that, like fundamentally where uh, Pema Hamalainen, that um, Oxford professor, his neck of the woods, uh, he's just come out with a book very recently called uh, in The Indigenous Continent, which is kind of this neat bookend with David Graeber's Dawn of Everything. Um, so it was that neck of the woods. It was literally kind of almost retracing that sort of almost Rousseauian inquiry into what loss of the sacred or sustainable or fill in the blank, um, what loss has Western civilization, what, what, did we, what did we miss or what did we get wrong and how do we study it? And at the same time, I was also getting into surf rescue, wilderness medicine, ski patrol, mountain guiding, and, you know, and psychedelic Grateful Dead and mountain town, you know, Newgrass culture. So there was righteous musical scene um, and kick-ass action sports and really rigorous academic life of the mind. And that and the, they were all informing each other, you know, so we'd go for climbs or skis or boats or, 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 or you know, expeditions have wonderful experiences, come back down and be like, okay, what is this landscape? How have humans used this landscape? Let's study this, you know, from indigenous paleolithic eras all the way to contemporary tourism. Like, what is this place? What are the people's footprint on it? And what are the insights that we're gaining from these tribal shared experiences of, commun you know, communitas and extasis? And where are the threads that lead back into the past? So kind of sort of almost like a neuroanthropology, like what's going on right now? Like take something like Grateful Dead culture or Burning Man culture. You'd be like, okay, this seems, this is hip, this is happening. All the cool kids are going. What is this thing? There's clearly a there there. There's a central experience that is the strong attractor for all these people to show up and do this thing, right? And I mean, for instance, even when John Mayer started playing with the remnants of the Grateful Dead four or five years ago, they instantly sold out and had the highest grossing tours of those summers. And they've been one of the top highest grossing tours of the last five years. That's 50 years after they started. So you're like, there's definitely a there there. Even if you purely just take market cap, you know, as, as, an, indic as an indicator, right? And the same with Burning Man. So you're like, okay, what are the core or deep structures underneath this thing? Why does it work? And then the anthropology pieces, and where else have things like this shown up in the past, in the historical record? Then you add in the neuroscience. What are the mechanisms of action underneath these things that made them all work, even if people claimed mythological or supernatural justifications or reasonings or priest class told you why something was something? Why does it actually work? And then how do we use that going forward to architect more interesting, healthy, vibrant, balanced versions of culture going forward? And that's the kind of culture 
architecture piece. So for me, it's been a curious sort of nature of, you know, almost a sort of rational mysticism, right? Or an agnostic Gnosticism, like rational mysticism, more like in the tradition of Pythagoras and then Plato and the, and the rest, but really going back to Pythagoras, which was mathematics, music, you know, uh, dying, breaking bread together, wrestling and embodiment, you know, contemplating the mysteries, all of the things, but then also having a really clean, logical Western approach to those things. That to me has just felt like the golden thread that I've sort of spent my life trying to track. And, and one of the insights that led to the founding of the Flow Genome Project was just, oh shit, we fetishize and idealize all these non-ordinary states, this mystical states as whatever, whatever, or flow states even, just you know, sort of dropping into the zone, that kind of thing. But once you understand their bio neurobiological mechanisms, you're like, we can just tune the dials to put ourselves into those exact profiles, you know, theta to alpha EG or delta, if you want to go for a, a really interesting experience, high vagal nerve tone, high norepinephrine and cortisol tapering into a flush of nitric oxide, into oxytocin, serotonin, anandamide, dopamine, into, you know, all of these things, right? In various spinal and postural alignments and movements. And wouldn't you know it, you're going to have a fit, you're going to have a more interesting experience in that state than you do in 21st century normal of high agitated beta, drip, 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 steady state cortisol, prefrontal cortex default mode network. Like, and that once, you, once we understand that, you really, it's kind of the wizard behind the curtain. You're like, we no longer need to yearn for transcendence and not know how to get there, you know, or wait for lightning to strike. You can sort of build a Tesla coil. You can, you can, you can create the lightning. And once you do that, not only does it get over your sort of neurotic obsessing of those states, but it also means that we can strip out all the mythologies Right, all the just so stories as to why these things work, and just keep the technologies. What are just the straight ahead mechanisms of action? And then you can democratize that. You can say, hey, humans, we generally do better when we have a, access to a wide range of neurophysiological input. It's why intermittent fasting and saunas and ice baths and all of these things, you know, uh, and high intensity training, we're all craving stretching that window back out beyond 72 degrees and a fridge full of food at all times. You know, so we're desperately trying to expand our range. And I think that that's arguably a really good marker for us to move towards um, for health, well being, but also inspiration and healing. So that's kind of it. I mean, it's basically been the history of humans, wild ass fun adventures in big natural places, uh, and then the kind of the science and understanding of how those things all mesh together. Thank you. I, uh, I love that description. It, it reminds me actually, the last person we had on the podcast was. Um it was Kenny Stills, but before that, we had Mike Posner, uh, a singer-songwriter. And, and one of the things he identified, and, and it's kind of what you're alluding to, is that he realized that his entire life had been in the pursuit of comfort. And then he realized hmm. comfort is not what he was in need of, right? And, and I think if you look through probably a lot of human history, at least over the last maybe couple hundred years, it's looking for stability, safety, comfort. And now that by and large, a significant portion of our population has achieved that, we're running into those challenges of 72 degrees and a fridge full of food is not satisfying and up against that. So that's awesome. I, I appreciate the, the insight and it sounds like it's been quite the adventure. You know, speaking of the Flow Genome Project, uh, I've been into this optimization kind of trend for about 10 or 15 years, biohacking, journaling, journaling Tim Ferriss, Ben Greenfield, Dave Asprey. 
you name it, I've probably done it. And I think I know your answer, but I'm curious to hear this. But one of the things I've started to really question is the value of this focus on optimization. The whole notion of optimization to me feels like it's based in perpetuating what I'd call a deeply entrenched sense of chauvinism, being the distortion of the masculine and the feminine that turns men into performance objects and, and women into sex objects. You know, Men get value from doing. Men are providers. And if we're not, then we lose our sense of identity um, that we only have worth if we are doing. It fundamentally, I think, takes us away from one of the core values that seems to be inherent in many of the mystery schools, at least, that we are valuable and worthy of love just by being. How do you respond to that? Because I can see like how the Flow Genome Project, you know, I, I think it's about flow, which is different necessarily than optimization, but there's so much focus on optimization and hustle and work and being perf better performance at work that in some ways takes us away from where I think we want to be going. Yeah. Although although what you just said about mystery schools, I'm I don't know too many mystery schools that aren't absolutely terrifying and incredibly hard and difficult. So the whole like you're special as you are cupcake, that to me is sort of like that's contemporary psychedelic and or new age and or personal growth therapeutic affirmation. Okay. Like, hey, you're yeah. good. It's okay. But mystery schools will kick the living shit out of you. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, A, I think that sort of hustle, grind, culture I thought it sort of died on the rocks of quarantine. I don't, you know, like with, with everybody quiet quitting and resigning and fuck this, we're not going to do this anymore. I'm not sure it's still around, but if it is, it is, it is, you can make a very straightforward case to support your thesis. You know, that it's kind of, it's a little aggro, it's a little macho. It definitely ties into like neo, like late stage capitalism. The idea that you can buy, attain, achieve, complete, succeed, rock, hack, you know, 10X, whatever, you know, all the things, right? And so for me, what I always just kind of stay, keep an eye out for in hearing anybody's shtick or, or sort of value proposition is just, are you also including the irreducible grief of the human experience? Are you also including the mystery of this whole thing? And if you're not, you probably just haven't lived enough. You know, if you, if you haven't raised kids and buried parents, if you haven't dealt with illness, disease, bankruptcy, divorce, if you haven't had your life and all your precious plans shattered and torn to shreds, you might have false certainty as to how much control we actually have of this game, you know? And, and in fact, there's a recent show, it's on, it's BBC, but also on Amazon called The English, and it's got Emily Blunt in it. It's a Western. It's a very cool kind of interesting Western. And she befriends this Pawnee warrior. And he's basically like, all the life is just as aiming and aiming and aiming until one day you miss. He goes, that's it, right? And, and, for me, I, I would go more on the side of like Pema Chodron or any number. I mean, wise folks, they're not all women, but definitely there are, I, I don't hear too many wise women aping the stuff you would just been describing of the aggro grind achieve, you know, th th there tends to be, and whether this is the initiations of motherhood or, or just some other more innate perspectives, you know, Pema says there's, she's like, there's something almost aggressive about trying to iron out all the rough spots in life. Right to be alive is to be continually thrown out of the nest, and for me that feels much more true, much more just centered. There's not sort of the requirement to constantly project perfection or strength or or, or growth or points on the board or whatever it would be. It's just saying, hey, this thing is rather strange. You know, we're monkeys with clothes. We're spat out into this world through no direct 
commitment of our own, we suddenly look around and if we were blessed to have a nurturing home environment, the world is almost never the same. Many folks don't even get that healthy head start. They get spat out into a world and it's all chaos, even in their family of origin. And you're like, I didn't choose this. I didn't sign up for this. None of this makes sense. And yet, right? Like on the one hand, red in tooth and claw, nasty, brutish and short. And this just seems like a shit show. And on the other hand, ain't better angels of our nature. There's art, there's creativity, there's the kindness of strangers, there's love and romance. There's all these profound things that don't seem evenly distributed and don't seem like we can hang our hat on them forever. And, the, and, and how do we balance this all out? And by the time we figured it out, we're fixing to die, <laughs> you know? So, so like something that can be, that can reside in the center of that and, and hopefully with a bit of a sense of humor. Um, that's more the kind of area that I would feel comfortable pitching a tent. It's one of my subsequent questions, but I'm going to bring it up here, which is, do you ever wrestle with the question of the why? Why, why is that experience? Like, I, I think you very accurately summed up you know, life in, in, in a couple of sentences. That's a pretty good assessment, I think, um, and an objective and real commentary on it. And it, it gets into like the spirituality component of it, which is like, what is, what is the reason for it? It meaning like life, life, the universe and everything kind of why? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of like the big why. Um, and I know yeah. there's all sorts of spiritual passes at that. Um, but where, where do you land on, on that? Or is it just a question that's not relevant to you? No, I mean, it, it, it's funny because I, I just came off a podcast with some you know, skeptic debunkers of the whole Kanchi spiritual scene. And they just presumed or imagined that I had some Baroque spirituality you know, a worldview that, that I was sort of going to be wed to or defending. And I'm like, nah, not at all. I mean, I'm super cynical, super skeptical, and agnostic as all get out. You know, like if I was ever to write an autobiography, it would probably be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like the things that I've had to like reconcile and integrate with otherwise a fairly skeptical, rationalist, materialist worldview, the list is long. And that's kind of been the, the dialectic of my life is accidentally having wild, non ordinary experiences and then going, what for the love of God was that about? And then just trying to figure some stuff out. So for me, those kinds of you know, stony late night college philosophy jams, they don't interest me or draw me. I'm like, I don't know. And I, and I, like, I don't know whether there's reincarnation. I don't know where we go when we die. I don't know why we're here. There's, I mean, and I don't honestly think any other human who's still in this form could either, but I sure as hell don't, right? But that said, the answer to that question is the subject of my next book okay. because, <laughs> because what I see coming and even our early conversation on neoliberalism and is, you know, the McDonald's theory of peace and all the thing, right? All, all that kind of that classic, you know, globalist uh, neoliberal narrative that we've, most of us have been riding along some currents of for the last 30 to 50 years. All of that stuff is running onto the rocks. And even just the, ascent of Western civilization is running hard onto those rocks. You know, Francis Fukuyama, I mean, it's probably the book that few people ever actually read and the most people always go to quote, but his end of history and the last man, which I think came out in 1989. And it was his assessment, he's at Stanford now, but it was his assessment that, hey, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that's it. Like Western democratic capitalism, tippy top of the heap. It, this is the pinnacle of the 
adaptation of human civilization, we're there. There is nothing better or above this, right? And obviously, he's, he's lived to eat and retract those words. But since then, and especially in the last five years, right, there's been all sorts of kicking the tires of late-stage capitalism, Western neoliberalism. And I think it is fair to say that any civilization that turns out to be self-terminating in less than 500 years flat probably doesn't have uncontested claim to the highest, bestest thing ever. So you're like, right? I mean, it reminds me of that old police tune, walking in your footsteps, like, hey there, Mr. Brontosaurus, don't you have a lesson for us? You thought your reign would last and last. Now you're a thing of the past, right? Walking in your footsteps. So to me, I, what I see is, you know, I wrote about in Recapture the Rapture about our meaning crisis, right? We lost organized religion as our go-to, but we've also lost modern liberalism, you know, science, government, experts, tech, technocracy, those kind of things. Both of them have been collapsing. So we're in this meaning crisis and we're seeing that rise in diseases of despair. We're also seeing fundamentalism and nihilism. We're seeing people go to absolute certainty, right? And we're seeing people say, nothing, fuck it, I'm out. And so going into what appears to be a lumpy, bumpy, several decades of, you know, whatever, energy, environment, food security, you know, you name the things, they're all there. I think there's going to be a spike in diseases of despair as more and more people come to the end of their stories. And so I was kind of trying to solve this. I'm like, well, look, what is, what is, what is a story, right, that can soothe our souls? can explain the predicament we're in and can give us hope for a future to keep on going through the hard part so we don't give up the ghost when we need to be really holding on to it and really digging deep. So that was my inquiry, really. I mean, in some respects, it's a love letter to my kids. And my sense is, is that at the most basic level, a whole, like, what's the problem of evil? Like, why are we in this shitty mess? And why do we build things like Las Vegas and Walmart? Right? Like, just those, just those, those two, you know, like, how, what the fuck? How did we do this and why? And my sense is, that, like, while there may be or may not be some Manichaean true evil, evil, I think that enormous part of what we experience as evil in our lives is just the gap between evolution's imperatives and our own. So if you take, you know, sexuality, and I wrote about this in Recapture the Rapture, I said evolution is amoral, right? It doesn't care about our vows till death do we part. It, all it wants to do is constantly mix up the gene pool and it, and it will seduce us with lust and attraction. It will tweak us with, you know, different ovulation cycles to, ca you know, to, to capitalize on pregnancy with a stranger because that's a different mate and different gene pools. It'll create midlife crises with testosterone drops that can be only met by, you know, th that without, <laughs> without a doctor's help can, you know, are generally uh, improved by sex with a younger available, you know, partner, all these crazy things. Evolution does not care, right? It just wants the gene pool. We experience it as that, you know, Helen, of Troy and the face that launched a thousand ships, we experience it as war, we experience it as violence, we experience it as trauma, we experience it as all these things. And we're just dancing on the strings of evolution. But it's, it's deeper than that, right? So evolution, I think it's imperative. And again, a number of people with more certainty than I think they actually merit will confidently tell you what the purpose of evolution is or what the purpose of consciousness is. 
And quite often, they're sort of high and to the right. It's about love. It's about the expansion of consciousness. It's about humans, even. Like we are the pinnacle, and it's our, and it, we are the way the universe knows itself, right? There's all sorts of purple prose to explain those things. And I'm just, I'm under convinced by the evidence they cite. It's, it would be neat if, but again, fuck if I know. But what I think we can know, right? What I think we can know is to say, if you take a look at evolution, what appears to be its driver, and you're like, hmm, it pretty much appears to be a novelty engine. It is a giant ass novelty engine. And, it, and the way novelty engines work, starting all the way with the origins of life in hot springs, is fission fusion. It's boom, bust. You over-propagate and then things collapse, and the things that don't collapse persist. And that feels wonderful on the creative side and horrible on the destructive side, right? And so Schumpeter's, you know, the economist creative destruction, you're like, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's wonderful to be making bank, you know, and expanding your multinational company. It's terrible to be laid off in the Rust Belt while your jobs are offshore forever, right? And so we experience, and, and, and it was Harold Bloom, he wrote a book called The Genius of the Beast about capitalism. And it was, this was the seed of this idea for me where it was, he was like, oh, capitalism is no different than algal blooms on a pond or the birth of galaxies. It's a boom-bust novelty engine. So you're like, oh, wow, we've got hot springs in the origin of life. Like literally heat things up, they get together and they're excited with energy, cool things down, they separate and do their thing and repeat for billions of years. And then something happens. Oh, wow, life. Fascinating, right? So fission fusion is novelty level one, right? Novelty level two is like dendritic expansion, right? So capillaries, roots, river estuaries all do that branching thing. Neurons, right? We all, and you're like, why does that pattern show up consistently at all scales of nature? And the answer is because it is the most efficient way to find more novelty. So you branch and you explore and exploit, right? So you look, branching, 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 then you find uncontested niche with energy, right? And then you expand because you, you're the one who found it and no one else has yet. And then you overexpand and then you expire. So you're like, okay, that's level two, right? Level three, dopaminergic novelty seeking. Like if you've got a spinal column and neurochemistry, you, we are wired for what Robert Sapolsky at Stanford calls the magic of maybe. You know, like if, if every day I, I'm a hunter gatherer and I pick the, pick the berry from the berry bush, I get one unit of dopamine. But if I follow those bumblebees and find my Winnie the Pooh honey stash in an empty log, bam, that's 400% dopamine. So we are hyper incented to continue to seek the new. And then the final level is arguably play. That's the level it becomes elective. It's older than humans, right? I mean, ravens do it, dolphins do it, wolves do it, right? So, so it's way deep in the animal kingdom. But we do too. And, and that sense of you're like, oh, so if the purpose of life doesn't necessarily have a directionality to it, right? Time's arrow, which is what most of us have been raised on. Like it's getting better all the time. Got to admit, right? We're going that way, right? More people living above $2 a day, more people with cell phones, more people with antibiotics, longer lifespans, all that good stuff. We've been raised on a teleological story right? It, it gets better and we are close to the pinnacle of the good times. But if you, if you change that and you're like, actually, maybe it's not time's error. Maybe this is just cyclical. This is just forever. Creation, destruction, creation, destruction, creation, destruction. And at the biggest level, we know, right? Big bang or whatever the hell we want to call the beginnings of our universe ends in the heat death 
right, of a cold, indifferent universe. So we know on the macro, macro, this is a cycle also. But in between, you're like, now what? Because I would slip my wrists at this point. If you're just like, hey, man, civilizations rise and fall. We've had our time. Let's just go over the falls in a barrel. It was good. It was fun. You know, like that does not meet the need for hope criteria, right? That's just set. And, and we'll see more of those kind of nihilistic stories. I mean, even Steve Bannon, and for anybody that's been hearing of The Fourth Turning, that book, which is about cyclical history, we're seeing the rise of accelerationists now who are literally saying, who, who are subscribing to that kind of six circular history. They're saying, we are into the decadence and decay phase of this last cycle. Let's accelerate its collapse so that we can get to the fresh slate new start where we're on top and we call the shots, which is potentially sociopathic. Right? So you can see how this kind of stuff isn't just abstract philosophy. It's very, very real in our lives. And then you, but you get back to that play notion. You're like, okay, neat. So this one is elective and that is and play as novelty engine. You're like, let's put in your chocolate and my, my peanut butter. Let's, would you like to play a game? Right? Play is arguably the most conscious, highly evolved expression of novelty seeking. And then as humans, and this is kind of where it gets back to free will, what game do we choose to play? And you could make a case that playing the infinite game, right, not win-lose, but everybody winning and trying to play the game for as long as possible is one of, if not the highest expression of volitional play. I choose this, free will. And what do we choose, what do we choose to do in that game? You're like, well, in all of that creative destruction, there nonetheless is novelty and mutation. And some random, highly improbable, gorgeous shit shows up. Like hominids, like you know, Gothic cathedrals, like Beethoven symphonies, right? Like sunset in the Himalayas. All kinds of very rare, very precious, highly unusual stuff shows up in that novelty engine. And you could make a case that our role as humans is by choice, not not by mandate, not by destiny, but by choice. We choose to preserve and protect, to honor and celebrate the good, the true, and the beautiful that emerges. And you're like, okay, because this gets very interesting, right? Because like, what is this illusion or even just, I wouldn't even say illusion because that's loaded, just perception of time's arrow, right? Because people be like, oh yeah, of course it's progress, dummy. We were in caves a hundred thousand years ago and now I drive a Tesla. Riddle me that, fancy pants. You know, and you're like, okay, yeah. What is, what is that? Right? Because without a doubt, you can see certain linear progressions, but my senses, and this is not a fully developed uh, thesis, but it's definitely where my I want to be fleshing this out, right? As I write this um, book, which is that it's almost like every cycle, right, has a high point, a high watermark, and if you connect the dots of all those high watermarks, right, into a line, it looks like a trend line. So you, you're, you're like absolutely right. Those boom bust cycles, that creative destruction, is increasing, and each time it posts another one. You got single cell organisms, multi cell organisms, sexual reproduction, spinal columns. You got all these things, right? But they too were just part of endless ebbs and flows, endless boom bust cycles. But when we connect those dots, it gives the illusion, right, of direction, or no, it gives the perception of directionality, right? And so it's recursive and accretive. So it's recursive, it's always cycling, it's accretive, each high point adds to the last high point. And so then we become agents of evolution, but not because a guy, in, you know, a, a god with beard in a bathrobe mandated it, not because our sacred scriptures said so, not because, you know, a deterministic 
evolutionary biologist said it's in our genes and it's inevitable, but because we choose to, right? Kevin Kelly had a beautiful phrase. He said, it's so much easier to describe the devil and God because entropy, right? Everything's going to suck eventually, right? But he's, but he's, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, he's like, but you and I are highly unprobable. That, that, that specific flower, highly improbable, right? We shouldn't be here, but we are. So, what we need to do is get much better at believing in the improbable. And that's what I mean about the free will to choose to preserve and protect, to honor and cherish the good, the true, and the beautiful. Right? It just it centers us. It lets us understand why, for instance, I mean, again, like why did we build Las Vegas and Walmart? Why, does cap- why did capitalism eat the world? Because it is the most effective propagator of novelty of any economic system ever devised. That's why. It's not necessarily a moral judgment. Right, it is just understanding. Oh shit! It is a novelty engine eating the world. That's what it's doing, and it will continue to do that to us and through us, unless or until we, until the next most novel thing. And we may be, in fact, I think we almost undeniably are on a downward cycle. Like we, there's going to be a lot of composting, you know. But if you look at it, like the Christianity couldn't couldn't have spread without the collapse of the Roman Empire, but the preservations of its road networks. You know, the dot-com bust of 2001 and all the fiber optic cable that got laid is what gave us Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, <laughs> you know, and all the others. Um, you know, the Black Plague and the collapse of a third of Europe's population broke the hold of feudal, feudalism and set up the age of exploration and scientific renaissance. So every time that death writes the code for life, that's Bruce Damer's term, right? That over-propagation of all possibility spaces and then just carnage and collapse and mutation right is what we need to be cherish cherishing going forwards i realized i called it in the the rumble of this conversation being the rumble in the jungle but it, it's not even close to that it's a, it's a one-sided defeat of i am so intrigued and overwhelmed with the thoughts and information uh, and i'm grateful for everything that you've shared so oh, far dude, this, is, this is so a jam this is this is no, absolutely I mean, absolutely it's it's awesome uh but i'm like it's I'm just going to recognize it for what it is. It's like the the speed and and depth at which you think and share this information is so amazing to me. I, I love just sitting here listening to you talk. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that. Like I find it informative. I'm learning. I, I feel expanded by this conversation, and uh, so I just want to thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, look, dude. In a, in a nutshell, I mean, I, I boiled this down at the psychedelics conference in Vancouver at UBC last month, but I was basically like, look. That that super duper TLDR is evolution is is a giant is a series of novelty engines. That's one, and then yeah. human nature is just our quest to eat starlight and heat star stuff. Right? If you're just like anthropologist from space, like what are we fucking doing, monkeys? You're like, oh, yeah. this is all like photosynthesis to metabolism to carbon. Like we basically we metabolize oxygen, we set carbon, we eat and 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 heat carbon, and we concentrate nitrogen. Like those are the three elements in our atmosphere. That's the game, you know, from bat guano and fertilizer to NPK, you know, <laughs> you know, petroleum, fertilizer, like that, this, these are the only things we're playing with and we're basically yeah. eating and heating starlight and that's our quest, you know? And, and it's so interesting, especially, I mean, coming from, because I think psychedelics are almost irreducibly anthropological at some point. You're like, what are my hands? Like, what am I as a being? Like, what are these opposable thumbs for? Like, how did we get here? You know, like, what is this stereo hi-fi system and playing strange music by this band called the Beatles? You're like, you whatever, right? I mean, you can't help but pop outside of your socially defined, you know, reality tunnel. 
and take a strange look at us as, as you know, the time traveling space monkeys and having a story that is not, that, that actually is honest and accurate is some kind of big history take on it and then depersonalizes our attachment to both identity, to culture, to our specific civilization, but lets us understand the big arc of this stuff, I think is going to be important for our immune systems going forward. It's important for our resilience and important for cultivating radical hope. You know, Not just that it works out in my lifetime, but that we're going to do a hard thing and we're going to stick with it because we believe as a willful act of faith that it eventually works out. Yep. Or, or we choose it, which is a great way to circle back to, to recapture the rapture. So I have two questions immediately, which is you just said you feel like we're on the downturn, right? Like the, the trajectory is, is going back into one of the crevices, one of the downs, presumably you know, the perception of it going up starts to peak again. I think a lot of people feel that way, but what is it specifically um, that makes you feel that way. And much of Recapture the Rapture, I think, is a proposal of an antidote for that um, potential downturn, or at least maybe a way to make it more tolerable. Um, so first question is, why do you believe that? What do you point to as that being the downward trajectory? And then I guess the qu- a couple of questions. One is like, do you think that there's enough in what you propose? I guess we'll ask, like, what do you propose in Recapture the Rapture um, to maybe traject, change that trajectory, at least offer hope? And does it feel too bleak? Is it too late? Um, or how, how do you reconcile the fact that this seems to be an inevitability? Um, and, and so you know, going back to the question about hope at that point, but let, let's start one at a time. Yeah. I mean, you know, my graduate study involved quite a bit of sort of in environmental history. So specifically, not saving the environment, not, not polar bears and old growth, but just what is the role of you know, race, class, and gender are the typical things in social sciences to study, but it was like race, place, class, and gender. And one of the major areas of study was just natural resources, hydraulic societies, aka anybody from the Egyptians to the Anasazi using irrigation to support you know, agriculture to support large population densities. The moment, you know, and studying the inevitable collapse of all of them, <laughs> except for ours just yet. And this was before the Colorado River. This is while the, you know, while Lake Mead and Lake Powell still were at full pond, but we knew the Colorado River was getting sucked, was getting pumped out for more. We knew the Glala Aquifer was getting drained with straws in it. We knew the Central Valley, all those things, right? So I kind of came to these inevitable conclusions decades ago. And then I kind of put them all on the shelf when our kids were born. And I'm like, right, okay, I'm rooting for Team Human. Uh, I'm no longer going to be pointing this out and killing everybody's buzz at cocktail parties with, did you know <laughs> like how fucked we are? Right. So, so set that aside. And once you know it, it's sort of like a Mr. Miyagi wax on, wax off situation where I'm like, oh, all that stuff I studied a while back is suddenly super, super relevant again. And then all of that's taking place on the back of a one-time bonanza of setting 100 million years of buried starlight on the fire in the form of fossil fuels. So the question, and it's not theoretically impossible at this point, it's just pragmatically less and less likely based on how we're, actually, how we're doing so far, which is it's kind of sort of backwards down the Kuznets curve. So right, the Kuznets curve is that notion that the more advanced a civilization or, or a society gets, uh, the less it pollutes. 
So AKA yay, Sweden and Ikea, right? So, so and, and that the, and if you're completely undeveloped, you don't pollute much. It's the ones that are industrializing or modernizing that pollute the most, AKA India and China. So that is a very handy, like that's back to your neoliberal. So the answer, friends and neighbors, is to fund more, fuel more, develop more, innovate more, and get everybody up and over the Kuznets curve. So we get to do business as usual, right? And, and, and just pass on the benefit, the fruits of modernity, and we'll figure it out that way. And I don't hear many people talking about this. And maybe it's just because the timeframes and perspectives are not specific to somebody's academic discipline, or it's just too uncomfortable to think about. But I think the fundamentally, we are in that neck of the woods when we talk about technology and sustainability and all those kind of things. To that Einstein quote of, you know, if the third world war is fought with nuclear weapons, the fourth will be fought with sticks and stones. And the, really, I think the only question we have for ourselves right now and for our children is, can we innovate our way off a carbon dependent economy with all of the techno-industrial sophistication that that economy affords us in time before we suffer a degradation of capacity and our ability to innovate said damn near impossible solutions. If we can do that with even a you know 50% step down, it would be an absolutely historic win. But the capacity for us to be like, whoops, overshoot, political instability, migrant crises, food insecurity, collapse of global communications, finance, you know, transnational organizational coordination, pandemics, bobbity, 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 bah, and we're down to sticks and stones, lickety split, and no one is inventing low voltage desalinization at scale from that place. You know, no one is inventing the next salt or, you know, battery that doesn't require rare earth metals. No one's inventing any of that shit, right? In a world of that degraded capacity and instability. So to me, that is the question of the next century. Because in theory, if we just stopped making cheap plastic shit and stopped building weapons of destruction and just put those two things, just rampant needless consumerism and the military industrial complex on the task of innovating for humans' salvation, I think my, my, then I'd be super bullish. I'd be like, I'd give us 70 to 80% odds of pulling that shit off. It's just, we don't appear to be anytime soon. That's the rub. That's the one that kind of, I wouldn't say it keeps me up at night, but like, that's the one that I feel is the sort of the central question. In Recapture the Rapture, what you talk about as the antidote, you know, I think, and, and I, I'd invite you to go in more depth about it. I mean, we talked about meaning 1.0, religion, meaning 2.0, neoliberalism, in need of meaning 3.0, which gives purpose, but is also scalable, accessible, affordable, um, and all of these things that already exist within the framework of being accessible, affordable, and available to us to start to transcend at least our uh, you know, dogged determination to be miserable a lot of the time, I guess is like a first stepping stone, but it doesn't actually speak to those things that you were talking about, about shifting the military and co industrial complex to that. So I, I guess like first would love to get that explanation. So everybody listening uh, just has a, a bit more of a framework about your suggestions about how we recapture the rapture. But then mm. I'd love to hear about how that translates into the challenges that you've identified. Well, I mean, look, I wrote that book with the assumption that all of our efforts don't work. I mean, I, I don't say that, <laughs> but that's where the, the designing of the book came from. So it was a little bit almost like those 
time capsule projects we might, you know, we did in sort of grade school. You know, we're like, we're going to yeah. bury a two liter soda bottle with all this stuff at the bottom of the playground. And then somebody's going to dig it up 20 years later. What are we going to put in it? Right. And that was really the point for Recapture the Rapture. It was saying, hey, it was twofold, right? One was rapture ideologies, like these crazy end time stories of all stripes. I mean, it could be everything from crypto to seasteading to true fundamentalist traditional religious raptures to QAnon to you name it, right? We're seeing this enormous spike and we're only just getting started. There's going to be more whack-ass stories about what's going on than you can shake a stick at in the coming decades. Right. So the one thing was, hey, how about the best of us, the rest of us, the people who just want a chance for our kids to have a better life than we did, die in our sleep, surrounded by our grandchildren? Like, how about that hugely moderate middle around the world, right? That just wants a chance to love and be loved and live a life of simple meaning. How do we reclaim our story from the whack nuts on, on both extremes? So that was, that's level one of recapturing the rapture. And then the other part is our lowercase rapture, our bliss, our healing, our integration, our belonging. And so my sense is, is that we're pretty sure, at least, you know, at least in my survey of the history and the literature and contemporary analysis, I think we're pretty sure that tops down monolithic solutions aren't going to work anymore. No king, no no new world order. You know, you either get totalitarianism or fascism or some combination of both. And there's no single person or no single party or no single religion that has a universally helpful, healing, effective take on anything, right? And even our our reliance on techno philanthropism, like the, like the Gates Foundation. You know, I mean, like even just that simple one. Never mind nefarious plans to microchip the world just you know um just mosquito nets right like, like the mosquito nets completely went sideways in their african applications and the gates foundation in reward you know in, in incenting you know they did a bunch of clever data analysis and then you have the heads of hospitals in south africa and kenya and botswana and everywhere else they're like they have now with their incentives structures completely warped our efforts to do on the ground care for our people so now there's three vaccines and or three diseases they've identified as their poster children. Meanwhile, we've got kids who need dental work. We've got malnutrition. We've got a thousand things going on. But because those are the only things that get money, we're now it's now bending and shaping our stuff. Or the fishing nets getting you know, or the, sorry, the malaria nets just getting used for fishing because yeah. the people were hungry and Lake Tanganyika didn't have enough fish in it. So you both over overfish and collapse your fisheries. They've got pesticides on the nets. They're further polluting the water source. They're not being used for malaria bed netting. You're like, oh wow, this is a clusterfuck. So take any example of that, and you realize tops down solutions are either ineffective or won't be tolerated by the people, or both. So we're like, okay, what is the sort of blockchain or Linux? What is some sort of, or WordPress even, if that's a more familiar example for folks, what is the WordPress of building grassroots, decentralized, healthy, healing, resilient communities, right? Using, and, and, and I think WordPress is a nice example, right? Because it used to be 10, 15 years ago, if you didn't know how to code, you couldn't make a website. So it either created very expensive middlemen you know, web developers or web designers, and it knocked out tons of small entrepreneurs, anybody looking to do their own thing. With WordPress, it was Dragon or Squarespace, it was drag and drop. You could build your thing. They still looked completely unique because people were putting in their own words, their own stories, their own images, 
their own offer to the world, but it was on a shared platform that worked. You know, the links didn't break, there was good uptime, all that kind of stuff. And so that's really what the majority of Recapture the Rapture is about, is like, what are those building blocks that, that work in architecting culture? And then cut everybody loose. Like, it's not up for me or anyone, I would think, to say what your community ought to look like, but you can say, here's some known issues, be careful of those. Here's some must-haves, and here's some bells and whistles, you know, or like a, a box of Lego. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing lots of metaphors just because, you know, one will land most, you know, dynamically for someone, but like, you know, it could be a box, they all click together and you can click them together in any way, but here's a couple of pictures of some rad shit you might want to build. Here's a Starship cruiser yeah. and here's a, here's a T-Rex, you know, have at it. And, and my sense was, is that back to that time capsule idea, like I wrote this book such so that people, if they needed to, could have a shot at rebuilding transformational culture from scratch on the other side of collapse. I appreciate that. And, and just, you know, you talk about ecstasis, catharsis and communitas things you've mentioned already, which is ecstasis, you know, getting out of your body, catharsis, healing and communitas connecting. And, and there's lots of techniques like breathing, sexuality, embodiment, substances, and music are the ones you touched on and these create the alchemist cookbook do you want to and i'll leave it to you but do you want to sort of go into those at all and just provide a little bit more detail about um how they can be used what they lead to or i can hop into my next questions which are about psychedelics and and some other kind of concepts as well yeah, I mean, again, not only was I mean, you can see I'm I'm a stock raving optimist, or my version of hope is actually just a little more. Uh, gosh, I think I mean, I think the simplest to say, my inquiry has been about post tragic hope. So if I feel like I'm sort of like either glib or casually discussing things that are actually deeply destabilizing or or confusing or sad, it's not that I have given up there. It's just my sense is, oh, we're heading there. So we have to find what's on the other side. And one of those things will also be if you kind of did a, what would IDEO, the design firm do? Because like they've, they've famously created that human-centered design toolkit, which they've then shared around the world for people in cities and slums and in rural areas to solve their own problems using their design thinking process. And my sense was, is like, if you wanted to provide open source, scalable, democratized access to peak states and, and authentic healing in communities, what would you do? And like premise number one would be like, you probably work with evolutionary drivers as much as possible. So like we have to breathe and we have to procreate. So respiration and sexuality, we know evolution has got massive, massive overlays, incentives, and drivers. And if we monkey with either of those situations, you get very strong results. Hence, Right? Why breathwork is a, a you know enjoying a huge a huge explosion these days because people are seeking state change through it, but also why pranayama, why any of the other sort of traditional breathing practices have been so popular and powerful. So respiration is one. Sexuality is again we've spoken of this earlier, but like for millions of years and the entire animal kingdom for hundreds of millions of years have learned to procreate without an instruction manual. So if you just try and get humans to do anything well without an instruction manual, you're like, holy shit, there has to be a lot of incentives and drivers, pre predominantly in our hormonal and endocrine system, right? P super powerful. But as we said earlier, we're sort of puppets on the string, right? We, we're just being yanked around by those evolutionary impulses. What happens if you learn to understand them, 
and then can practice some version of sexual fitness, right, as a highly powerful tool to get access to all the same neurochemistry, right, that MDMA PTSD therapy, for instance, uses, which is high prolactin, high oxytocin, high serotonin, all these things. You're like, oh, and, and Rick Doblin is the one who shared this with me. He said, he said the closest analog we've found is the post-orgasmic state. So you're like, okay, so most people are familiar with the profound results in healing that the MDMA PTSD therapy is producing in clinical trials. And you're like, hmm, and it's slow and it's tightly regulated and not everybody has access, but everybody, everybody has access to their own body and to their erotic arousal system. And Nicole Prousey, who's a Kinsey Institute researcher, and she's at uh, UCLA, I believe now, has been literally researching orgasm as prescription pharmaceutical for everything from anxiety to depression, to palliative pain relief, to, to insomnia, to a hundred. And you're like, perfect. That is exactly what we need. We don't need more pills, right? Wouldn't it be amazing? If there was just a YouTube channel and people anywhere with a phone, anywhere around the world could learn a protocol that could provide real, free, effective relief. Music is a dead easy one. It's just, it's arguably Daniel Levitin's work at McGill, uh, up, up your way, has made the case that music even predates language, right? They found bone flutes that are 76,000 years old, and clearly a flute wasn't the first thing. It was probably a soft toned drum, and that arguably music and rhythm. And call and response were some of our earliest socially bonding technologies, huge impact on neurochemistry, right? And, and huge impacts on group cohesion. And then substances sort of speak for themselves, right? I mean, Oliver Sacks, the famous neuroscientist, said, say what you want about drugs, but they do, they promise transcendence on demand. And so the capacity, and again, you know, and, and our desire to be intoxicated, as Ron Siegel at UCLA also has said, is, is our fourth evolutionary drive. It shows up again across the animal kingdom. Our, our need to shift states. However, we get there. It could be jackass moonshine. It could be it could be fermented fruits. It could be nicotine. It could be you know you take. It could be huffing glue in the, in the favelas of Sao Paulo, right? Like we have a desire to get out of ourselves, and that not just that being destructive and addictive. It can actually be part of a healthy novelty seeking regimen. So you know respiration embodiment. Obviously, you know there's a huge trend these days for the body keeps the score, Bessel van der Kolk's work, Peter Levine's work, kind of somatically informed trauma. There's also, you know, increasing research on the vagal vagus nerve, increasing research on the endocannabinoid system. Like these are our bodies. And if we learn to interact with them, tune them, calibrate them, put them in places of resourcefulness, we're going to manage stress and trauma better. We're going to be able to metabolize pre-existing stress, stress, and we're going to be able to keep clean or cleaner on what's coming down the pike at us again. And if you use all those together, if you use any of them apart, each of those is a royal road. They all work. If you combine them, you can get stronger, higher efficacy, more interestingly. So that was really the intention, which is what is a democratized, open source, hard to suppress set of techniques of ecstasy, a sort of a toolkit for inspiration and healing that anyone anywhere around the world can make use of in an empowering decentralized local way. Thank you for, for running through that. For anyone who hasn't had a chance to read the book, I, I highly, highly recommend it. You know, just for everyday life, it is a useful guide to remind you where to look even before you know, the, the rapture that so many people are talking about come. It, it, it's super powerful and, and I love it. And I want to respect your time. And so I have one more question that I'd like to touch on because this is a podcast ostensibly about psychedelics and you've brought it to psychedelics a couple of times and I keep taking it away because I find everything you say is so fascinating and insightful. But 
we should talk about that just a little bit, at least for one question. So I do my uh, my fiduciary obligation here. As part of the dinner you came to at Keith Ferrazzi's place in, in the Making of Ordinary Trip, uh, you were asked a few questions by our producer uh, and you were asked specifically about what you see as the future of psychedelics. Uh, and that you said, uh, and you may recall this, uh, that there is a, either a bifurcation or a trifurcation forthcoming. One would involve a soulless Prozac Nation 2.0, which is a purely medical model of psychedelics, a quote, freaky underground mystical model, and a commodification model where it enters the marketplace and becomes part of each of transformational festivals. You said two of the three are not particularly inspiring, but may have impact piece of the scale at which they will be working. And one is where you'd put the hopes for the continuation of human consciousness, culture, and community. I think you really touched on that in your last answer, but would you mind expanding on, on your thinking behind that statement? Tell me which one I picked. Did I, did I pick the underground? I think it would be the freaky underground mystical model. Yeah, you didn't actually <laughs> specify it in the answer, but just by virtue okay. of the subsequent comments you made, I think you picked uh, commodification in the festivals, lots of fun, lots of scale, Prozac Nation 2.0, also scalable, um, freaky underground mystical, plus so. My sense is, is that there's all sorts of good intentions and unintended consequences of the medicalization model, right? The good intentions are obvious. It's helping hurt people. Right, with tools that work better than the tools we've been using that don't work very well. Right. So hundred percent in favor of that. The the sort of flattening of the totality of the psychedelic experience into a scientific materialist model, step one, right? That that for instance, hallucinations, interiority, all those kind of things are known as sort of troublesome side effects and we're trying to patent something that can engineer our way out of that stuff is, you know, again, inevitable, but but also strangely tragic. It's the sort of almost um, the dismembering of the golden goose, you know, to see what's there. Then pour that into our current wildly dysfunctional medical model of insurance and co-pays and coding and time and efficiencies and the kind of factory model of medicalization. And between those two things, you know, and then sprinkle in high return, big farmer oriented venture capital. And you kind of just have a recipe for a train wreck, even if there are some, still some very real N equals one healing things that can happen along the way. The kind of somewhat decadent hedonist uh, recreational culture, um, I think it is abundantly clear the moment that infomarketers found out about Burning Man, that the most potent transformational spaces and experiences in the world are inadequate in the face of digital narcissism. And you can be, you can meet your maker, you can be stripped down to the core, you can be, you, you can, you can be a, a, a swaddling child of the cosmic babe. And the moment you're popping that screen to give your Instagram reel update, the moment you're being like, I've been down to the end. This looks amazing. I'm going to come back next year and I'm going to lead this thing and I'm going to take a bunch of high dollar muggles with me. This is my new job, right? And you're like, oh, that's a fucking nightmare also. So those two, I would say, don't leave me with a ton of hope just because the vectors, just the sort of, you know, the gutter ball kind of waits for us all and you can just see the ditches that, that have been dug um, for each of those trends. That's not to say there aren't profound and beautiful moments in transformational culture. It's not to say there's not profoundly dedicated healers working within the medicalization movement and profession. Um, it's just to say there's some really big 
there's just a lot of physics <laughs> involved in pulling those things into some fairly predictable outcomes. For me, I would say I'm, I'm, I put my money on the Prometheans, always have, always will, you know, which is that throughout human history, there have always been those stealing fire on behalf of humanity to share the light. And invariably, they get it going and that it attracts the attention of the priests, right? And, and the priests back in the day were priests. They wore black cassocks, you know, but then they became the men in black and they were like the G-men, you know? And then, you know, and so, so like who they are kind of shifts through history. But the idea of that priest class, right? The mediators of the sacred or the, or the controllers of the social will always come in, break up the party, scatter everybody. And that's true from the desert Essenes in the Old Testament era to the Gnostics in the first, you know, first century to the Cathars and the, you know, you know, in medieval Europe, somebody starts popping off and that shit gets shut down in a hurry, but it never goes away entirely. And somehow, some way, that lineage disappears, goes underground for a while, bubbles up someplace else and rekindles. And back to that novelty engine and the good, true, and the beautiful, you could make a case, and I'm, this is just occurring to me now, so it's kind of fun to have this conversation with you, right? But you could make a case that it is that hidden, time-jumping, Promethean lineage that are the keepers of the flame, the good, the true, and the beautiful. So like the, uh, the church of the GTB, right, is like, hey, we know enough not to presume any singular solutions for any of us, but we can absolutely bow, in, you know, bow down at the altar of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And no matter how dark it may seem, and no matter how much hope appears to be lost, there's always hope for both the healing power of nature. Just if we just stop for a while, stuff gets remarkably better incredibly quickly, right? Yeah. And the Prometheans as kind of special teams for for the beauty of this evolutionary experience. I love that, and I think that's a, a great place to. I, I honestly could have this conversation for another two hours, um, <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna lock it in here. And thank you so much for your time. I hope we get to do this again. I hope uh, you make great progress on, on whatever the next book is, because much like the first two, to me, it feels profoundly important uh, and you have an incredible amount of knowledge and wisdom uh, to share. So thank you for giving us an hour, a bit of your time right now. I found it super insightful and hope we get to continue this soon. For sure, man. Thank you. Remember when I said at the beginning of this podcast that I was worried I wouldn't be able to keep up with Jamie? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you know what I mean now. And just as much as it was a struggle for me to keep up, I'm so glad I did the best I could because some of the nuggets of wisdom that Jamie dropped were awe-inspiring. But there was one point in particular that stood out to me. You probably don't want to hear it, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I want to make it clear that before I say this, I want you to know that I'm no fan of Donald Trump for many reasons. But, and here's the point I'm driving toward despite all the caveats, I also think that history is going to be pretty kind to Donald Trump. Let's be clear, this is not an excuse for all the ills he's tapped into or unleashed on the world. It's not an apology for his boorish behavior or blatant disregard for so many things in what was ostensibly an ego-driven, self-serving power grab. But even though the medicine tasted awful, it may just be what the doctor ordered for this world. Permit me to explain. To me, one of the most insightful parts of the conversation with Jamie was when he acknowledged that maybe, just maybe, 
The hopes for a truly globalized world were a reach too far for where our collective consciousness is right now. In particular, Jamie said, quote, from 1945 on, we had the New Age, the Human Potential Movement, the New Age Movement, the Personal Growth Movement, the Counterculture Revolution. We had all the things and we've indulged in all the workshops we've done, Landmark and Tony Robbins, and we, we did it all. And we still are kind of shitty people. So the odds of us actually expanding at the last minute to global-centric conscious consciousness to save the day, I think is increasingly a pipe dream. So the question is, what are some potentially healthy forms of tribalism? And I think it's basically bioregional, the watershed, where our food grows and where our life orients and operates, and it's local and it's neighborly, end quote. And if we accept that a more regionalized world is what we need, I think wittingly or unwittingly, Donald Trump has, in large part, put that into motion. For instance, the trade war he so flagrantly started with China resulted in the repatriatization of manufacturing to North America, which is one of the reasons that the long-term effect of the zero COVID policy in China may not be as bad as feared because the move to more localized production was already underway because of Trump. To be clear, there are all sorts of risks associated with a shift to a more local and community-based society, and we need to be prepared to address them. We need to avoid the xenophobia that can occur in a more segregated world, and we need to ensure that the shift to bioregionalism doesn't leave certain regions holding the proverbial bag. But to me, this is a path very much worth exploring. And if it turns out to be the right next step for our society, as I increasingly believe it is, we may actually have Donald Trump to thank for expediting that. Hard news to hear, but it doesn't make it untrue. Thanks for listening. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review Field Tripping wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtriphealth.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producer is Macy Baker. Thanks to our production team at Legacy Media, and of course, massive thanks to Jamie Wheel for joining us today. To dive into all the wisdom he has to share, visit the link in the description or go to bigthink.com. <laughs>